Good morning, first service. How are we? Y'all are really loud this morning. I appreciate that. You're more awake than I am. I, yeah, I'm really feeling y'all this morning. This morning we're starting uh, week three of our series called Anxiety's Attack. And in writing this, I was kind of reminded of a story as we were preparing to go into this week. And really, as we've been planning this whole series, a story kind of stuck out to me. And I wanted to start this morning by talking a little bit about a family, a famous family, and kind of despite their celebrity status um, that history has given them over time, we're looking at this family, we're going to see them as incredibly dysfunctional, and this is a famous family, this is a family that you're going to be familiar with by the time we get done talking about them today, and that may be for good reasons or bad, because the reality is that a lot of times when families are this famous, the story is very repeatable. And within this story, we're going to get to unpack a common trauma that the siblings within this family share. And so as we jump into week three of Anxiety's Attack, I want to just begin by setting the scene as we see this little girl follow her mom out the door. Now, within this family, there are three siblings. The oldest is a daughter. The second, a few years later, is her brother. And then the youngest is another brother. And when we jump into this story, we see this little girl following her mother out the door. Now, she's probably waiting a few minutes because there's no way that her mom wants her to see what has happened. And so mom goes through the door, closes the door, sister waits, and a few minutes later, she opens the door and walks out behind her. Now, we are not exactly sure where the second brother is, which is actually pretty indicative of his personality because he's very humble and a little understated, right? We're assuming that he's somewhere in the house. We see sister go outside the door, and she's doing that thing where kids are kind of trying to be quiet and quick at the same time, and it's a little clumsy, and she's probably peeking around the corner and looking through alleyways and making sure that her mom has passed on through. But she has to figure out where her mom is going with that baby, the youngest brother. And so she's sneaking through alleyways, and she's trying to be quiet, and eventually she catches up with her mom, and she sees that her mom has made it to the edge of town, and she's out on the border of the town, and she's kneeling over the river, and she sees her mom just in time to watch her kiss her little brother goodbye. And she slips her brother off into the hazy mist of the river. I mentioned this is a traumatic story. Probably a couple of miles downriver, we see another lady with a completely different life, a completely different life story, and a, and a whole different past. And she's bathing in the river, and something catches her eye, something over by the reeds. And she tells her assistant, hey, go check that out, go investigate that. And her assistant goes, and she sifts through the reeds, and she picks up this basket that's been covered in tar pitch. And she brings the basket, and to their surprise, they open this basket, and there's this infant there squirming. And as if one surprised child isn't enough, this little girl, sister, who has been chasing down the river and watching this basket float, pops out of the reeds and asks if she needs help with this baby, with her new child. And so this woman, the wealthy woman who found the basket, said, yes, go find somebody to take care of this baby. And I have to wonder if the sister is a little hesitant to go get her mom after she watched the, her pitch the baby in the river. But she goes and finds her mom, brings her mom back, and she nurses the baby, her little brother. And from this time, none of their lives would ever be the same. The baby gets a new name, and we're introduced to this famous family that is going to change the scope 
of the Bible as we know it. And we would agree, this is a traumatic situation. And some of you are going to be familiar with this family. Some of you were with me right along, and you know that this little baby going down the Nile would be the man that we would know as Moses later. The middle child, Aaron, and his older sister, who's very concerned, Miriam. But for just a second, I want you to take yourself out of this story that is kind of well-known and you've probably thought about before and been told in Sunday school maybe before, remove yourself from that story that is so well-known and ask yourself, if you were to hear this story minus the names and minus knowing where it takes place in Exodus, that's a pretty traumatic story. And this morning as we're thinking about this and we're talking about this big idea of anxiety and where our trauma originates from, I want you to do your very best to take anything that you know about the story of Moses and his siblings out of that and put yourself in their actual context and ask how you would handle these situations. This morning we're jumping into week three of Anxiety's Attack, and the last few weeks we've been doing a lot of work to kind of define what anxiety looks like for the person who is trying to follow Christ. And we said that anxiety is a weapon that the enemy is more than willing to wield against us. It's also something that our current society, our our current culture, is willing to peddle out to you to make money. And we've been doing a lot of really hard work to define what does it look like when we have anxiety. What does it look like when it's just normal worries of life? What does that look like for the believer? Also, what does it look like when anxiety starts to kick up and we start scheduling around that? Ben was here last week and he did a fantastic job about talking about how even in the the slightest form, even the smallest anxiety can begin to overtake our lives if we are not looking for it. And this morning, I want to talk about this idea that anxiety in and of itself, whether we're talking about in the life of somebody so long ago like Moses or even in our own life, anxiety is an outcome to a response, or I'm sorry, an outcome or a response to an event, not a personal deficiency. You see, something that we've been thinking a lot, something that I've been thinking a lot about in this is, I'm glad that we're talking about anxiety within the context of church. But it's hard for me to reconcile all of this with a guidebook that was several thousand years ago. It seems like my worries are so much more immediate, so much bigger than what's going on in the book. This morning, I want to encourage you, take a look at this actual story with these three siblings. Ask yourself just how traumatic all of this actually probably was. And when we look at them later in their lives, I want you to see how that plays out and watch the way that God interacts with them in battling that anxiety. You see, when we read a lot of these stories, like I just said, a lot of the time we view these three people as personally deficient. But as we watch God work this out in their life, I think that we'll come to a different conclusion. And so I'm going to do my best this morning to talk about these three. We're just really doing three quick character studies on these siblings. And I want you to see how this works out in each of their lives. Now, as we unpack the lives of these three siblings, you'll probably find that one of them parallels you a little bit better. And maybe it's just the way that you react to anxiety, or maybe it's just your personal leanings. You're probably going to find that one of these three siblings really lines up with you. And that definitely happens for me. As I'm looking and reading through their own stories, and there's a whole big chunk of text that goes along with each of their stories, every time Miriam comes up, I see her almost as 
like this unwanted public mirror, you know? When you walk by a mirror in public and you're like, oh, I hope that's not really how I look right now. That's kind of what happens when I read about Miriam in the Bible. Because every time I see her, I'm like, oh no, that is me. Miriam is the oldest sibling, and I'm also the oldest sibling, and, and Miriam is perfectly willing to take charge, and she's kind of loud and bolsterous, and we see this happen a lot in the Bible, right? And I totally identify that. When we're reading about her, we see in the book of Numbers that she was actually a prophetess. People in the Old Testament, these early Israelites, were looking at Miriam, one of the first dominant women in the Bible. They're looking to her for answers. We see in the book of Exodus, as they're shooting out of slavery in, uh, in Egypt, that she was not just somebody who was leading as a presence, but she was actually sort of an equal counterpart to Moses in many ways. She was educating the women at the time and serving them spiritually the way that Moses was leading a lot of the men. She was strong and she was assertive. She was a natural born leader. But like I said a minute ago, I can tell you from personal experience that this can be a blessing and a curse, right? And as we look into her story, we realize that it can be very easy to lose ourselves in the highs and the lows when you don't understand the base that you're operating from. That's the crux of Miriam's story. And so when we're observing her life, it's interesting to watch how God works in this and she, she begins to trust him more through the ebbs and flows of life but there are certain instances where she bucks. And that's where we're jumping into right now. I want you to see both sides of Miriam's life because I think that's important. So in Exodus chapter 15, we see Miriam and she's actually walking alongside her people as they march triumphantly out of Egypt. She's walking along the bed of the sea and looking up at these towering walls where God had actually just split the sea so they could exit. And she teaches the people of Israel, not just the women, but the people of Israel, how to celebrate victory. I love this. I love this picture of Miriam because she's been in slavery for so long. When something good happens, she understands how to celebrate that. And in the first book, or the, I'm sorry, the first song that we actually see in the entire Bible, we see her singing. Here's just a snippet of it in Exodus 15. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel or, or a tambourine in her hand, and all of these women were already following her. They followed with timbrels and dancing, dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. We've been enslaved for years and years and years, but our old masters have been hurled into the sea, and our new master has helped us as we've come from this. She understands celebration. She understands the role that that's supposed to play. And already she's taking this role as a leader and educating the people on something so important, that being celebrating what God has done from them. Because of Miriam's life, because it included so much hurt, this celebration would have been a very big part of her story. Good for Miriam. But the flip side of that we also see is that the opposite is always true. Oftentimes, those of us who have experienced very real pain have a short trigger when stress begins to enter into our story, and that's exactly where we see Miriam's story go. This side of Miriam shows up in the book of Numbers as she's beginning to come restless and perhaps even feel threatened. 
You see, like I said, Miriam would have been in this place where she would have been leading the women much like Moses would have been leading the men. And due to her past, you can imagine this little girl by the river watching her mother slip the baby into the river. Or you can think about her in slavery while Moses was out herding sheep or whatever. You can see that she has a real problem with control. And when she begins to lose control, that other side of her tends to come out. And so we see in Numbers, and this is a very long and nuanced story, so I'll just kind of give you the overview. We see in Numbers chapter 20 that she begins to question Moses. Now, if you have a personality much like mine, you may realize that this is something that we also do. Instead of working on herself and thinking about where her position was, she began to question leadership whenever she began to lose control. This is a sticky spot for Miriam, and this is a hard thing for us to understand. But something that I have learned from the story of Miriam, something that I hope you take note of as well, is this. Influence paired with an unidentified trauma leads to a volatile individual. Some of the greatest examples of leaders that we have known were undone by this very fact. Almost as every good thing about them is ultimately working against their story. You see, what we see in the story of Miriam, and oftentimes when we have unidentified trauma in the past, is that the very thing that makes us such good leaders and people will be the thing that is actually our undoing. We see that in this story, Miriam actually becomes emotionally and physically ill because of the way that she went after Moses in Exodus, or I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter 20. We see her sabotage herself, and I notice this a lot in my own story. As we push on, we're going to talk a little bit about Aaron. I'm going to talk about all of these siblings, and we'll come back to Miriam in just a second. But one of the things that you notice is that in our spiritual life, something I want you to think about, in our spiritual life, oftentimes, even though our spiritual life isn't physical, we're looking for tangible things to go around it, right, so we can kind of measure it. Sometimes it's as, you know, as common as like a child jumping on a scale and looking how much he weighs, right? But sometimes whenever we're looking for something physical to give us proof about how we're growing spiritually, it ends up being this competitive thing where they're marking the door frame. Did your grandparents do that? I was in my grandparents' house not long ago. We were back home for a funeral, and I could see on the door frame where my grandpa had marked us growing, and mine stopped pretty prematurely. <laughs> you know? And that notch in the doorframe becomes so much more than just measuring my height. My, identif- my identity is somehow in that notch in the door. And it's weird when that shows up in our spiritual lives. A lot of times we're looking for something tangible to tell us that we're growing. But then when we begin looking at everyone else and saying, I'm not growing to that point. That is exactly what it looks like to be Aaron in the Bible. If you were to do a character study on Aaron, you could almost look at it as if you were watching a documentary of the middle child, right? He was quiet. He's a fantastic follower. So much so that even when it appears that he's leading, most of the time it's in support of either Miriam or Moses. He's fine with letting Miriam steal the show. Even when they exploded out of slavery, She's dancing, he's fine with that, he's fine with Moses being as successful as possible. 
Aaron is selfless, and he considers the well-being of all the others, and you see this over and over and over early in the Bible. But what we see in Aaron is that when he is actually forced to lead, he freezes. And I believe, again, this can be attributed to the trauma that was happening very early on in their life. At the end of Exodus 31, Moses famously ascends up the mountain to go receive these commandments from God to tell the people of Israel, hey, here's what you should do and here's what you should not do, right? You see them sometimes in front of courthouses. And we see that Moses leaves Aaron with his people. And as the days go on, the people become restless and they begin murmuring that their leader might have died on the mountain. And they look up to Aaron for leadership, and they begin asking him for the first time in his life, what should we do? Make a decision. Not just speaking for somebody else, but we need you to make a decision. And what happens is something that Aaron will regret for a long time. When the people saw Moses was so long uh, in coming down from the mountain, this is in Exodus 32, they gathered around Aaron, and he said, Come make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, listen how flippantly they've already let him go. We don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Some of you are going to be familiar with this story. He fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival towards the Lord. Now listen, there's something we need to note about Aaron right now. Aaron didn't just fall into this decision. Remember, Aaron was a priest. Actually, he was the founding member of the high priest that we would see for the remainder of the Bible. Aaron didn't just misstep and make a guess as to what his next move should be. Aaron did something that we often do. He decided that he would rather knowingly make the wrong choice, a harmful choice to himself, than appease and appease the people around him. We look at him, and you have to imagine that he's looking at his brother Moses and thinking, leaders make decisions. I'm going to make this decision. An important point here that we need to point out about Aaron and our own lives when we find ourselves in these sorts of situations is that comparison is one of the most harmful forms of codependency. Comparison is one of the most harmful forms of codependency. Let me just kind of point out my own, um, you know, shortcomings physically in telling you how this is, right? If I go into my gym and I see Mike Petyak deadlifting and there's endless plates on the bar, right? Hopefully, I get inspired and think I can be better than I currently am. The unhealthy form of Austin is I load up the bar and end up in a back brace, right? By by trying to compare myself to him, I actually could end up hurting myself. The flip side of that is the nice, sweet 75-year-old lady who runs in my neighborhood every morning that I see on my run, right? And if I race her to the top of the hill every morning and say, yes, I beat her again, (laughs) right? With her neon walking sticks and that thing that they wear on airplane, you know, those things, the security. 
if I put that in my mind, yes, I got her again, and I'm building up my ego off of this, my time is never going to get any better. I'm not running the mile any faster because I'm beating her every day. Comparison is not actually helping me in any of those forms. And actually, it's hindering me because I am gaining my sense of self-worth off of other people. What we need to understand is that sometimes by comparing ourselves to other people spiritually, we're actually harming ourselves spiritually by becoming codependent. And that is a natural line that comes from trauma, both in Aaron's stories and in our own. We have to keep going because we're kind of running short on time. But as we're looking at these, I want you to understand that sometimes we're going to find alignment with the people in the Bible. Sometimes we're not. You may, have, you may have been with Miriam and said, yeah, that's me. You may be with Aaron and say, yes, sometimes I have a hard time with control because I'm a little codependent. But I would imagine all of us can hop on board with what we see in Moses' life. When we read in the scripture about Moses, he wasn't just simply battling emotional or spiritual inadequacy. There was a physical component to Moses' life, and it showed his shortcomings. We learned very early on, and all scholars agree, that Moses probably had a speech impediment. And it was not just something that showed up every now and then. It was so much so that he had to have somebody whose job it was to translate what he was saying. That being Aaron, always in the support role. And we look at this, this is something that frustrated Moses often. Moses oftentimes went into fits of anger. We see that in the Bible. In fact, it's well noted that he had a short temple, uh, temper. Actually, temple, yeah. <laughs> He had a short temper. We see that when Aaron was actually building this calf, Moses comes back down off the mountain and he's so mad that he throws that first set of commandments and breaks them everywhere. Moses displayed this short temper and sort of anger oftentimes to the Bible. And I'd never really thought about this until I read this story, but I want you to look at this, and this is a defining moment in Moses' life, and there's a point that we can take from this. The Lord said to Moses in Numbers 20, Take the staff you and your brother Aaron gather, go and gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will uh, bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Now pause. I want you to have, just kind of know the stressors that are going into what Moses does here, okay? We actually know going into this that Miriam has just passed away. So Moses should be grieving. We also know that they are out in the desert, and it seems like whenever Miriam left, so did the water, and there was no water anywhere, and they're just kind of out wandering without any water, and people yet again begin to complain. Watch what Moses does in reaction to what God says. So Moses took his staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock? He diverts from that original plan. Then Moses raises his arm and strikes the rock twice with his staff. Water gushes out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I've given them. Now, don't miss what is happening here. There are plenty of stressors going on that are probably firing off some of those things that Moses has been dealing with for a long time. 
His anger is kicking up. He's having these trauma responses that he probably does not even really know about at the time. All he knows is that his sister has passed away. He should be grieving, but these people are complaining. And now God wants him to do the one thing that he is not good at and speak to a rock. He doesn't have time for it. And so he slaps the rock twice. I love this in Moses' story because I can definitely latch on to this idea that there are some times when I'm so stressed and so anxious that I do not have words to go forward. Sometimes we come to the end of ourself and we don't have words to go forward and so we just act. Ludwig Whiteson said it this way, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. When it comes to anxiety and trauma, sometimes we cannot explain what we have not explored. And when you look at Moses' life, you realize he had not explored this sort of pain in a long time. He could not speak it out, and so he slapped the rock. One of my favorite authors, Brene Brown, says it in her latest book, Atlas of the Heart, this way. If you had an immense amount of pain in your shoulder, ultimately, either a doctor or your friend or your mom or whoever is going to come to you and say, where does it hurt? Tell me how it hurts. And when our hurt overcomes our ability to explain that hurt, we do one of two things. We either curl up in a ball in the fetal position, or if you're like me, you probably start swinging. When we've been hurt to the point where our words can no longer explain what we are feeling, if we do not have the words to explain what we are feeling, it does not end well. And we see this in the story of Moses. He had never worked out some of these things, and his anger was still getting the better part of him. And it's tragically overlooked in the story of Moses that, yes, while he led the people out of Egypt, and yes, while he got, saw God work in this, like miraculous ways many times, he did not get to finish the job because he was never able to overcome that anger. Last point when we're talking about these three siblings is that when we fail to come to peace with our past, it will be a feature in our future struggles. So often there are things hanging around going unidentified from the past that we continue to let be issues for us emotionally and spiritually years down the road. This is what we see in the life of Moses. Now, as we're kind of coming through this and coming to the end, the beautiful point in the stories of Miriam, Aaron, and Moses is that although they struggled at times, even up until the end, as they walked the path of life, they did all progress. And if you would like to read from Exodus through Numbers, I highly encourage you to look at all of their lives. You're going to hit Leviticus eventually, but... I highly encourage you to look at their lives and you can see that they did progress. There were many, many more struggles at the beginning than at the end and they progressed spiritually as people. But another point to make there is that as their emotional health went, so too went the Israelites' health. The better and the healthier the three of them were, the easier time they had leading the people that God had put in charge of them. The equation to overcoming our anxiety includes both God and others. And I think the big point here is that because they did this together, we see that when they are actually talking about this together and they are actually having conversations with each other about how to lead and each other's personal deficiencies, 
they tended to be leaders of the people much, much more efficiently. It's worth pointing out that in each of these cases, the overcoming of their personal issues helped everyone involved. And so my question today is, what does that look like for us? Knowing that within the context of community, God works out a lot of the things that we have been taking a stance not to work out from our past. How do we enter into that as a community who is trying to look more like Jesus and also live life together? These are three complicated stories with three complicated people who were running in this nation of Israel that God had entrusted them to. My question today is, can you take yourself out of your own story enough, like we've done with these three people, and look at the things that are influencing the way that you behave, influencing the way that you react, influencing the way that you talk to other people, and influencing the way that you interact with God? And can you also look at the people that you are affecting by doing that? Our prayer for Vertical Church in this whole series on anxiety's attack is to point out a couple of things. Where is your anxiety? What is the root of it? And how do we deal with that in the way that the Bible instructs us to do so? And we hope to point out that this is, a, this is a problem that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Our emotional and spiritual journeys take place simultaneously, and God is attentive to each of those. So this morning, I want you to consider which trap do you fall into? Does it look like Aaron's? Does it look like Miriam's? Does it look like Moses's? And as you look at the course of your life, how do you see yourself maturing? Have you taken the steps to name that original place where these feelings came up? We need to understand that as people of God, if we do not do that, much like we talked about with Miriam, the enemy will use our gifts to sink our potential, what God wants for us. One of the beautiful things about being a part of a community like this is that God has invited us to be a part of what he is building here. Don't let your anxieties and the root of those anxieties sink that ship. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for this time that we get to spend together. I thank you for this work that we get to do together. Your Bible tells us, Lord, that within the context of community, we can see better what you look like and what we are supposed to look like in you, God. And I pray that Vertical Church would be a place where that is happening often by meeting in groups by meeting together, by discussing the things that are happening in our lives, by being vulnerable with one another, we would come to a place where we can say, I know what this feeling is, I've felt this before, and this is how we get out of this. God, I pray that people would take advantage of the resources that you've given us, Lord. We know that you've given us gifts. We've spoken about it in this series, God. You've given us therapists. You've given us medicine. You've given us resources to come to a place where we can be at peace with the things in our past that are haunting us, God. I pray that we would not be so prideful as to overlook those things, but that we would get to the root of what we need in you. God, thank you for a place where it's safe to do all of this. And thank you for your son and the Holy Spirit that he gives us, God, that guides our steps in that. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Guys, Ben will be back for week four of Anxiety's Attack next week. We look forward to seeing you then.